Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We have an awesome show for you today in person. After having our guest and his entire team with us for episode 17, it was our first and only Menage Quattro episode. And if that doesn't get you hot and bothered, we're going to be talking about quant finance, which should really get you going. Our guest is co-founder, managing partner, portfolio manager of Resolve Asset Management, co-author of the book, Adaptive Asset Allocation, as well as all sorts of white papers, including one we worked on together. Began his career on the institutional side, John Hancock, and then subsequently with the rest of his crew, which you guys will remember, worked at Macquarie, Dundee Goodman, before launching Resolve 2015. Welcome back to the show, Rodrigo. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to see you in person, man. How's the e-foil? Will you tell our listeners what an e-foil is, by the way? Oh my God, it is God's gift to man. I think it's the most exciting piece of machinery to come out for anybody that pretends to be a surfer, likes the ocean, or even the lake. I'm uh, born and raised in Peru, and my adolescence was spent uh, surfing the waves. I was literally five minutes from the ocean for years. And when I was forced to move back to Canada and everybody told me about the Great Lakes, I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I haven't been able to do anything in the ocean for years and the e-foil comes along. Explain to the audience. It's like a surfboard that then has kind of like this foil that goes two to three feet underwater and it looks like the wing of a plane. It's an e-foil because it's purely electronic. You have a trigger in your right hand or left hand or whatever. And it has a little motor that you press, and depending on how much you press, you're going to go faster or slower. It starts getting you off the ground. If you can get up on your feet, you'll be on the board two or three feet off the water and doing all types of fun tricks and go as much as, I think, 40 miles an hour. So I've seen Laird do it non-electrical power surfing. He's the godfather. Okay. And that's pretty awesome and fun to watch. You know, I actually saw him shoot the pier once at Malibu when we were out there. I was on my like Costco board playing in the in the shore, but watched him uh, shoot the pier, which listeners, if you're not a surfer, it means you go through the pylons on the pier on a wave, which I would 100% just face plant into a bunch of barnacles. But I've also seen him surf in Hawaii too. So I can claim I've surfed with Larry twice. Have you twice. seen him surf the, the foil? I think they had some a whole crew out doing it when I was there. And watching some guy just fail over and over again, trying to do it, which was made me feel better about myself. But it looks like a lot of fun. Oh, it's so much fun. Honestly, you can get up on it fairly quick if you have any experience in a board. It took me about, I don't know, half an hour to get it. And then after that, it's a matter of... What do you do? Do you start on your stomach like you would you like a You start normal? on your stomach, you go a little slow, then you get on your knees, and then pick up the speed a little bit. Then you get up on your feet, try that for about 10 minutes, and then you start pulling the trigger high enough, the board gets off. And then it, it's a matter of centimeters, inches, as you like to say in America. You don't want to move around too much. It's a delicate balance. And it's like the uh, coyote in cartoons. When you're feeling it, when you're in the zone, you're going. Everything's perfect. The moment you feel like, oh, my God, I'm flying. You look down, 
you're going to face plant. Is the main thing where you just kind of dip your nose and then face plant? Is that usually? You dip your nose and face plant. And again, it's one of those like your eyes point down, you're done. You got to go, you got to feel it. That lesson took me a long time learning how to wakeboard, the looking down where you end up going. This is a really dumb question, but it's one that seems like you're going 40 miles an hour theoretically and the bottom of that foil must look like a missile. Have you ever like crushed and murdered any poor fish any dolphins i mean no i killed a coconut once so we were at with uh, so a part owner of the firm of lift which is this e-foil company is jerry Solaji, president of catalyst funds and rational funds which is we run one of their funds and we went to the context conference in january i get there he calls me up and he says are you in the conference we didn't know we were going to the same place i'm like yeah you want to skip a couple of meetings and go e-foiling so we went to the there's the ocean side which is a bit too choppy and there was a bay side and on the bay miami this is miami right on i think it was a w hotel and there's a lot of palm trees a lot of coconuts that are falling into the water so you I did face plant while coconut got lodged into the propeller. That's kind of the successor conference to the old Alpha Metrics. And there's one other. Is it Futures Focus? I think Salt is the other one. Okay. Yeah. Salt's in, in Vegas. All right. Enough about that. I want to hear a little bit about your background. I think the listeners would appreciate it because you grew up in Peru. Yeah. Good surf breaks in Peru. It's a lot of lefts, isn't it? Are you regular or goofy foot? I'm regular. Okay. Yeah. There's the longest left in the world. I had a bunch of friends going and I said, look, I have a hard enough time riding regular backside for me. I don't need the longest left in the world. Like I'd love to go down and hang out. But so I missed that trip. Tell me about Peru. Tell me about growing up. You were just a quant out of the womb. That's right. Actually, an aspiring quant. My father was a math professor. He was a naval officer in the Peruvian Navy. He was also a professor at the University of Lima. Me and my three brothers were, whether we liked it or not, we're going to be forced to become mathematicians. It was fun being at the dinner table after dinner. Then the math equations would come out and we'd compete against each other. The thing about Peru at the time, though, was I was there from the time I was born and left in 1988. So I was there for my first eight years and saw a lot of crazy stuff. 88, I think Lima, it was the first time we'd heard about the terrorism. You guys might have heard of Shining Path, Sendero Luminoso. They were mostly out in the provinces, but when they made it to the city, it got really really dodgy. A lot of bombs going off, constantly being in blackouts. And I was a kid, I didn't mind it. I thought it was fantastic. Family would congregate. Nobody else had anything to do but play board games. It was amazing. But that combined with some of the economic issues, which was the Peruvian currency was pegged against the US dollar. We were reneging on IMF funds. Inflation got crazy out of control. And so the combination of those two things made us emigrate. We had two options. We were either going to go to Australia or Toronto. And Sadly, my parents chose Toronto. I'm just kidding. I love Toronto, but... I've never been. I'm going to be there this fall. So you're in charge of showing me around if you're there. If you're not at your co-worker's new compound relocating the Caymans. Exactly. Yes. The Cayman Islands. We're trying to get back to the beach. Toronto has been great to us, but it's a little too cold. Right. Well, Australia, it seems like that would have been... Australia to me feels very similar to California in many ways. I've never been. Never been. It's wonderful. Lovely place. Big fan. Love going there. Been a few times for work, oddly enough. All right. So you guys decided to go to Toronto. Yeah. I mean, the reason we left was because it was a crazy time. And I don't know how much of this is things that I remember and things that I pieced together over time interviewing family members, but it was the first time I saw the power of macroeconomics could really affect your life. A few of the things that happened, which are kind of crazy, was 
that inflation was always high. It's like Argentina right now. You're kind of used to having 20, 25% annualized inflation. You go to a bank, it's kind of fairly stable, the rate of inflation. You get a 20, 23% rate of return on your GIC or your interest-bearing bonds. You get a pretty good lesson on the difference between nominal and real returns at a very early age. That's right. But in 1988, inflation Peru, after we reneged on the IMF loans, went from 23% to 7,200%. And some of the things that I remember was my grandfather had recently retired, and he'd send a letter to every family member saying, look, he was an accountant his whole life. He had said, you guys will never have to worry about me. I have a million dollars, equivalent U.S. dollars in Peruvian solas. Intis, I think, was what it was at the time. So I'm taken care of for life. And after that year, his million dollars turned into the equivalent of zero U.S. dollars. That was the first. I remember having the discussion around the family members that we had. He had to go back to work. We all had to kind of help him out. And then the contrast to that was my next door neighbor. He had reneged on his mortgage. He owed this huge mortgage like a year earlier. They were about to evict him. He had a few U.S. dollars, actual U.S. bills under his blanket. After that same year, he was able to pay off his mortgage, which was hundreds of thousands of Peruvian intis with like a couple hundred dollars U.S. dollars. So the debtors won and the savers lost in a massive way. And that led to a mass exodus of anybody who had any sort of education everywhere around the world, Australia included, not us all right, so Toronto, you bought a coat, winter gear. What was the career arc then? You wanted to be a mathematician? It was more of the same observations. I remember getting there in 1989-90, and my father bought our house with zero money down. It was a massive bull market in housing. And so we bought it zero money down, and then the housing crisis hit. The housing crisis that every Canadian has forgotten about. But housing prices in Toronto were down as much as 50, 55%. And after a few years there, where I saw my father struggle through putting his own money in the markets in 1990, he lost so much money in Peru that putting money to work in small cap equities in Canada right before the recession meant that he lost more money. And then we ended up moving back to Peru in 94, where we had to sell the house at a 50% loss with money that we didn't have. It's just like all these things are happening. And my dad, being a math professor, I would have thought would be smarter about the dollars and cents side of things, but he wasn't. But it was certainly a formative experience for me. Went back to Lima, did my high school years there. Nothing to really talk about, except for it was quite an exciting time. It was really fun down there. You can do a lot more things in Peru as a teenager than you can in Toronto. And then I came back to the University of Toronto. I went to Rotman, did my commerce degree there. And when I got out, I didn't see any other way to attack the market, but from a macro perspective, I didn't understand why everybody needed to focus on individual stocks, everybody just trying to beat the S&P. My experience was such that I wanted to kind of mitigate against global disaster. And then the background in math and quant made, I can't be a 26-year-old that can gather 25 years of experience like a la Warren Buffett. I needed to figure it out mathematically, so I did. So I focused on asset allocation quantitatively from the get-go. All right. So you started out in really finance from the beginning. So hopped around to a few different places. What time did you pick up with the Three Amigos? So 2004, get into the business, John Hancock briefly. Then I worked for a family office. We were running two and a half billion, trying to find the best managers on the planet to put together more like an analyst role of fund to funds. I wanted to get more hands-on. I was already running some strategies myself. So I decided to go off on my own and gather some assets as a lowly Peruvian immigrant that knew nobody 
at the Smile and Dial, grab as many people, mostly attorneys because I knew they had money. And I went around and talked about quantitative investing and systematic and rules driven, not letting your emotions get in the way. I told them my whole life story. The, from what I know about Canadians, that sounds like a horrible strategy. I feel like you should show up and just be like, I have a few junior minors. I've got some. You have I've got no some. idea. <laughs> it was at a time too, like it was 2006 when I decided to do that on my own. That was in the middle of the massive commodity boom. Yeah. I remember going out and my buddy was a geologist in Argentine that went to University of Toronto with me. He would take me around places. All he did was those mining deals. And it was so crazy. When you go to a bar, everybody was doing deals left, right, and center. They'd look at you and they'd say, you know, who's this guy? I'm like, oh, he's a buddy of mine, right? He was like, well, okay, I'll give him some free shares for now, but you got to talk it up and all this. I got, the people were just giving you free shares left, right, and center. I was terrified of the whole thing. I didn't understand it. So I, I refrained from participating. But every time I refrained from participating and I saw the numbers, the Eric Sprott commodity just finding fund. warrants all over the floor. There's just, somebody just dropped these warrants. What all his pitching was, uh, I don't want the tech crisis to happen to us again. And why do you want to have 25% annualized return when you can get a steady 8%? It was tough, but managed to gather enough assets to make a go at it. Warning of the possible scenario similar to the tech crisis. And lo and behold, 2008 came. It all happened. And that's where my career really went through the roof, made some money for clients that year. And then everybody came to me at the wrong time. <laughs> After the fact, <laughs> well, right? I think it was the single digit positive returns for clients. And then the next year, everybody who had thought about investing with me, invest with me right before my strategy does 7% the following year and Canada's up 35%. People wish, so immediately people buy had, what they wish they had bought exactly, and vice versa. And then, so you asked me when I met Mike, that was 28. So I, I was on my own for all those years. And in 2011, Mike and Adam come to Macquarie. I remember the night they came, it was the night they moved over from another bank. Adam comes up to me and says, so what do you do? And I looked at him and I said, you know what? It's a bit too complicated. Why don't you come back to my office tomorrow and we can talk about it? He looks at me in the eyes and says, why don't you try me? That night we spent like six hours until 4 a.m. whiteboarding. It was like in a room full of horses, you know who the zebras are? It was the first time I'd found two people that were thinking the same way I was. That night we partnered up and I moved over to their area and the rest is history. That's so funny. So what was the original inspiration for you guys to cruise out on your own? Well, Macquarie, we were managing money internally at the bank. We were already managing money for other advisors. It was separately managed account. It was kind of this overlay program that we called adaptive asset allocation. They were going to create a separate Macquarie arm for asset management. We were going to run the asset management arm and get all the distribution for a product. Took a couple of years to get that through to Sydney. Sydney approves it. And then I think it was uh, late 2014, they come out and say, we couldn't do it in Canada. We're out. And so they left Canada and it gave us the opportunity to figure out whether we wanted to be part of another bank or have a go at it. And we'd been publishing enough content by then that we recognized that the demand really came from Americans. And Canada was still, if you weren't talking about gold and mining and today marijuana stocks. Cannabis and real estate. That's right. Real estate started to cool off, hasn't it? It's starting to, very, very slowly. You can actually bid on a house and possibly get it versus bidding on 14 houses and then paying 150% more than you expected. We published enough, we realized where our audience was, and then we said none of the Canadian banks were ready to get into the U.S. We decided to go off on our own, get our licensing, and build what we're building. All right, so you guys do all sorts of stuff now, private fund, mutual fund. I want to talk a little bit about the 
investing framework because you definitely do a few different things. We touched on some in the first episode, number 17, which we'll link in the show notes. But I love this paper. It's titled Global Equity Momentum, A Craftsman's Perspective. What's the thesis? Talk to me about this paper. It's grabbing a popular strategy from a guy that we love and respect. Gary Antonacci wrote a book. He's been on the pod. He has. He has. And he basically put out a very simple approach to extracting returns or minimizing your drawdowns from being invested in U.S. equities, global equities, and then getting out when things are not kind of in a downtrend and getting into bonds. And it's very simple. You're basically executing, I believe it's over a 12-month period if the S&P 500 is above over the last 12 months and you keep investing in it. If the global markets are above the S&P 500, then you invest in those. If both of them are below zero, then you go to bonds. Fairly simple, very popular across the planet, actually. When I speak to Peruvian advisors and I ask them what they do, they use Gary's process. Low turnover, probably. Very low turnover, simple to implement. This word simple, simplicity. And then what we do is on the other side of the spectrum. If you were to see what, how it is that we trade our products, if we were to have a uh, separately managed account product that is similar to this, I think it includes emerging markets, we trade more often. We're actually looking at multiple signals and people see it as, they say, well, that's complex. That complexity leads to fragility. And they couldn't be more wrong when you look at the data. This craftsmanship perspective is about identifying the difference between complex versus robust. And really, it starts with this idea that one specification could really hurt you in your lifetime. The original specification of 12 months using two asset classes for equities and one asset class for bonds will work over 100 years. It'll extract momentum. It'll get you out most of the time. It's a perfectly viable solution. But if you're hired as an asset management firm, we wanted to take that trend approach to its limits in order to maximize chances that we're not going to get unlucky. And so what really matters to most investors is how we perform over a two to three year period, not over a hundred year period. And with the simple specifications, you can go, you can get chopped up in a single year and get into a lot of trouble. Here's a very real world, simple example that I think is the probably one of my favorite examples of this where if you were a trend follower using something similar, call it, you know, long-term simple moving average, and you say, you know what, I'm going to invest in stocks when they're above the 200 day, I'm going to be out when they're below the 200 day. It's worked kind of forever. You roll into the 1987 crash. And if you were in, I think the 200 day or shorter, you would have been in cash during the crash. And I could get this specifically wrong, but and if you were in the 200-day moving average or longer, you would have still be invested in stocks during the crash. And so it is a very binary outcome if you have clients or you have a fund that one day you're either 0% return or probably actually up a bunch because you would have been in cash and bonds or down 20. When you have a strategy that across probably all the parameters, 10, 50, 100, 200-day, 300-day, you would have had a more blended outcome. That's right. A portion of your strategies might have been in, portion might have been out. The likelihood that that one outcome might have hurt you badly and your clients badly, where everybody, where you're getting fired and your clients are getting pissed off at you, is actually mitigated. So I like to use this analogy of the black hole image that we took recently as, as humanity. We've finally seen an actual picture of a black hole. 
And when you read the headlines, it says that image was captured by the Event Horizon Telescope. Now, if you read the headlines, you're thinking this single telescope captured that image. Well, it's actually not a single telescope. It's hundreds of telescopes in eight global sites that each individual telescope captured a very, very poor image of the black hole. If you really squinted your eyes, you would have kind of seen it look like the black hole that we imagined in in Hollywood or what mathematicians kind of said what an event horizon should look like. But it's very faint. It's a very faint signal. So again, it works, but not as precisely as it should. What they needed to do is they needed to aggregate the data of these hundreds of telescopes into a site. It took them a couple of months to put it together. All the error terms were eliminated. And then once they had aggregated all of the data, they were able to provide a high fidelity image of that black hole. Well, this whole paper is about that. We start with, here's a single specification, 12 months. That's a single telescope. It does okay. You can kind of get momentum from that. But what we did is we actually iterated how we define momentum. So we said, what if it's not 12 months, but rather one month or two months or all the way up to 18 months? We also did moving averages. So the one month crossing the 18 month, the two month crossing the 12 month and so on. And so we just randomly created a wide variety of specifications. And instead of looking at each individual backtest and saying, oh, I like the 10th percentile backtest. Let's go with those. We said, let's just put them all together. Because we don't know. We can't tell whether it's going to be the six and a half month look back that's going to be the best performing market over the next five years. That's a really tough gig. If you just use the ensemble, if you use them all similar to the Event Horizon Telescope, what you end up capturing is a true, more high fidelity signal of that trend strategy. By the way, I 100% agree with you and love this. And I think it applies to not just momentum, but really any approach. Value certainly is one where if you've been using price to book, you've really been sucking it up for going on decades now. But if you use enterprise value to EBITDA, you've been just fine. But going forward, which one's going to work better? Who knows? And so I don't know why anyone would read this paper or along the same theory, any of the research on value and decide not. I mean, I have a theory that we can debate as to why. Why would anyone not use an ensemble? What's the pushback you hear? There's a couple. Okay, so the first one is that it's too complex. So for people who have read a simple strategy and apply for their business, they won't be able to do this. It requires a lot more trading. It requires some programming. It's just too complex, and I understand that. But as an asset manager, if you're a quant and you're saying this is too complex, then it's just a matter of what is it that you're saying no to? Are you saying no to it because it kind of takes away the value of the strategy that you gave a name to? So there are a lot of quants out there that have established a specific parameter set and have given it a name or have done enough marketing on it to say, hey, that is the way to do it, rather than it's really you're going against the ego of everybody in our industry. We're trying to say that we'd rather be broadly correct about capturing that specific signal than specifically wrong. And when it comes to value investing, there have been careers and multi-billion dollar businesses built on a specific parameter, price to book, for example. But as you mentioned, I think Factor Research came out with a fascinating research report that had U.S. market it had the back-tested performance of price-to-book, enterprise value to EBITDA, price-to-sales, price-to-earnings. And what you saw is price-to-book is at the bottom of the heap, slightly outperforming over the last 20 years against the S&P 500, so still extracting value. But I think the best-performing one was enterprise value to EBITDA. Don't quote me on that. But when you go to the European market, 
price to book is at the bottom again. And then you have these other ones really outperforming, these other parameters outperforming price to book. And so you would think, and this is kind of the meme right now, is that price to book is dead, that it doesn't. Well, if you go to Japan, people would take offense to that because price to book is the best performing backtest and all the other specifications are at the bottom of the heap. What's interesting across the board is that by combining all of them in equal weight, the multi-parameter approach does better than all of them. It just feels like non-compensated concentration risk. I mean, the example we give when we talk about valuation is, you know, say a lot of times there's a structural, you mentioned that some of the different geographies, structural reason why some of them may be biased. So for example, we talked about Australia earlier, their tax code incentivizes companies to pay high dividends. So if you're just to sort on dividends, you're always going to get a bunch of Aussie stocks because they have typically a different structural reason. And my theory, because we believe in composites, ensemble, whatever you want to call it, across everything we do, I think laziness is not the right word, but I think people like to gamble. And having one parameter, everyone thinks in binary terms about everything is like, hey, I have this stock. I have an investment in gold. Should I sell it? Should I stay in? And if you have a binary indicator, like the 200-day moving average, you're either in or you're out. And then you have something to cheer for. But if you're only 25% allocated, what do you cheer for? Are you cheer for adding more or selling it? Like it's like People love certainty. They like binary outcomes. So should I or shouldn't I? If your answer is always like, eh, a little bit, maybe just take a tad and then kind of ease into it. Nobody wants that. The things that sell are the ones that are certain, that you're going out there and saying, here's the specific things you need to do. And anything that's nuanced becomes much more problematic. This is super nuanced. This does not guarantee that you'll be the best performing strategy. In the paper we show, how I think it's like 1,200 different specifications. So the idea of 1,200 different strategies, the ensemble isn't the best one. It's 90th percentile sharp ratio. There's the dream that, well, my specification is 95th percentile. I'm going to create an index based on that. I'm going to market that one. It's easy to explain. So a lot of another thing is marketability. I can tell you firsthand, this is not easy to articulate. It's a lot easier to be a big index provider and say, here are the two rules. Here are the rules. This is what you're going to need to do. They can regurgitate it to their clients. Their clients can buy in and you're in. So there's value there. When you're saying we have 1,200 different ways of looking at this problem and you're in the 90th percentile sharp ratio, well, what about that 95th percentile one? Well, that is luck. We can't be sure that that one over the next five years is going to be in the 95th percentile again, but we can be more sure that using the ensemble is going to provide us a smoother ride in the time period that we need it to matter. And the paper, the paper goes through the back test that was done for the book, which I think was 1970 to 2012. And it had that specification, the 12-month had a return of 16%, low drawdown and whatnot. What we did is we extended the back test to go from 1950 to 1970 and then from 2012 to now and saw what that specification did during that period using a bootstrap method. And all of a sudden, the return went back down to the median of all strategies as expected. It wasn't the 95th percentile outcome. It was the same, statistically speaking. So the other benefits of using Ensemble is that you, you minimize those periods of bad luck. The drawdown is in the 99th percentile best drawdown, is in like the smallest drawdown of any single specification. The same thing for the worst five-year average period. And again, what's beautiful about the Ensemble is that if you don't use Ensembles and you're faced with 1,200 different 
virtual managers that you need to choose from. You need to choose a manager in hopes that five years from now, when you look back, it's at the very least better than the 50th percentile, at least better than a coin toss. How difficult is that? Using ensembles means you don't have to make a choice up front at all. You just get the 90th percentile or more without having to be biased in any and way. And then on top of that, another. theoretically, if the parameters really are no better than the others, or you don't know ahead of time which ones are, if you're using a manager that only uses one, for example, that manager will survive, in which case the money will flow to that manager because they look brilliant. But often is the case, the chances of that single parameter doing well in the future, like you just mentioned, could be, again, a coin flip. And all of a sudden, like you probably would have been better, who knows, going with, with the short well, parameter. What's so. tough is, let's say, you know, we do much more than momentum. But let's say in this particular example, you're a momentum manager. You're using the ensemble methods. There's always going to be another momentum manager that people are pointing to saying, well, you guys are both momentum. He's killing you. I'm going to do what he's doing. How do you bridge that gap of understanding? So this is the papers trying to really discern robustness, anti-fragility versus possible luck risk. Here's another real world example. I mean, our very first paper was written with a single parameter and have received, oh, I don't know, 10,000 emails since. Where people said, Meb, so in your paper, when you're using, in the paper, we use the 10 month moving average. In the paper, we also showed it was irrelevant which one you used. You could use six months, 12 months, doesn't matter. Over the years, receive 10,000 emails about, so read your paper about the 200-day moving average. I'm like, already, that's wrong. They're like, so when you said, like literally the description of the paper was so funny because it says, you buy when the price is above and you sell when it's below. That was like the entire, could not have been any simpler. Every email says, so do you mean you sell when it's like 1% below? Because everyone starts, they want to introduce, they're like, it's too black and white. They want to introduce their own- Their own twist to it, or the magic formula. Their own discretion, yeah, their own twist, their own whatever. And I said, no, like, what are you talking about? The rules could not be more clear. But I said, also, it doesn't matter which parameter you use over time. What you should be doing is using a blend or using whatever else, but that's no fun. You can't cheer for that again. It's also again. not only that, that everybody wants to have their own stories. Like, well, that was a good paper, but I wait an extra day and make sure that there's volume before I make the trade, whatever it is. They're also trading a single asset class more than all. People love to trade the S&P 500. And so this goes into the idea of, I like Corey Hofstein talks about the ingredients and recipe. The ingredients is what is the strategy or the, the signal you're trying to extract, in this case, momentum. The recipe is what you put into it. Asset classes, how often you rebalance, what your look back is. The guys that are doing a single asset class, again, over time, likely to work, but it's only happened a handful of times in history if you're talking about the 200-day moving average. Adding more asset classes increases the breadth, improves the recipe. I know that you do a lot of different asset classes for your approach. That minimizes the chances you're going to be specifically wrong. And then beyond that, looking at different lookbacks, that increases the chances that you're going to be broadly correct and so on. So you can improve the recipe by simply increasing asset classes and doing different iterations of that particular signal. And few people like to do that. They like to it's just too tough to explain. They like the parsimonious approach. It's funny you mentioned because we spend so much time thinking about the challenges of getting investors to comply. And it's actually so many end advisors or investors we talk to, they want that simple answer. You mentioned it. like They want to be able to say, yeah, this fund does X. And there's been some very successful product providers that 
put out products that just have one rule, a switch, and people can explain it, despite the fact it's probably very suboptimal, but it potentially aligns better with career risk. So who knows? We'll see. After we launch this paper, Corey Hostin was also writing a bunch on ensembles at the same time, independently. And he also talked about the global equity momentum stuff. And we got independently demands for somebody to create rules-based strategy and what we were publishing. So we actually got together, Corey from Newfound and us, and we created an index, selective index called the Newfound Resolve Robust Momentum Index. Just kind of went out. We'll see what type of reception we get if people really embrace the ensemble or prefer the 200-day moving average. What's the big overview of the theory or composition of the index? How's it work? Again, it's really people that liked global equity momentum and that approach just said, I want that, but better. People who just really like trend, really just like to focus on two to three asset classes. So it'll be, the index includes developed global equities, developed US equities, a little bit of emerging markets. So I think it's caps at 25%. And then if nothing's working, you go to treasuries. That's it. But the recipes included are multiple. So half of them came from Corey's thought process. Half of them came from ours. Again, it didn't, like you say, it doesn't really matter. We just put a bunch of things in the pot. They're all virtual momentum managers that are trying to find momentum in these four asset classes. We're giving the audience what they wanted, what they asked for. This is a fun project. And we're actually working with a ETF company that's contemplating launching this as an ETF. So Good. We'd love to see it. We'll see. We'll see if it beats out the 200-day moving average companies. Funny, funny. I love it. And does it end up going all in one asset class or does it mix? So what you'll find, if you look at the transition map in the paper, the original specification, again, it's 100% certain. You're either 100% in the S&P or 100% global equities or 100% in bonds. When you look at the transition map of the multi-ensemble, you never find 100 or rarely find 100% in a single asset class. It's this idea, like when it comes to investing, when have you ever been 100% certain of anything? I'm always certain and almost always wrong. Anytime that's I'm right. certain, that's why I'm a quant. I was like, anytime I feel myself, the emotions creeping in, it's like the best contrary signal. Oh, like You feel the urge of whatever the pull of crypto in January 2018, whatever it may be. Oh yeah, no, 100%. And the key thing here is that what this does automatically is it infuses a sense of humility to the process. You see the transition, you see that the systems together, all the aggregate votes never agrees or rarely agrees 100% that you should be holding one of the four asset classes. And that infusion gives it a little bit of humility and makes sure that it's not a complete blow up at any single time. Now, this is a fun project and it is for people that like this process, it's a better version of that. But of course, there's ton more you can do, as you mentioned earlier, the ingredient, there's ingredients beyond momentum. And then there is asset classes beyond these four. Most of our work goes in that direction. Right. Infinite variance. You know, we'd start to marinate on some tickers for you guys. ROB, robust. That wouldn't be a good one. Rob. <laughs> ROBU for robust. Rob you. <laughs> um. We spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about future tickers. I can't, I'm not even going to Talk about it we could now. go on for hours. We love thinking about that in the uh, in the world of reserving and launching funds. One more comment before we kind of skip on. It's funny going back to this concept of binary decision making. So often I was having this conversation with a friend the other night and she has a lot of her net worth in one stock. She's like, Meb, what do I do with it? And I'm like, do you want my honest advice or do you, just, do you want to be told what you want to hear? 
to give me their honest advice. I said, you should sell it all and diversify or, or sell most of it. And it's one of the most famous high flyers in the US. So obviously they want to keep it because they made a bunch of money. And I said, wow, this is it's going on. You know, I said, look, best advice, tell you what, sell half, go halvesies. And I've given that advice to hundreds of friends over the years. I guarantee you zero, zero have ever done that. If you have too much allocated or something, like sell a quarter of it, sleep at night. That way you don't have the hindsight bias. This also applies to, I think, um, dollar cost averaging or investing all your money today. People stress so much about that. I'm like, well, just spread it out over a year then. But they don't want to do that. They want to cheer for one or the other. We like clarity. And I think on the stock side, I give the same advice. I say, look, you're part of a company. They're giving you stock options and stock in that company. They're allowing you to sell. Anything that you can sell, you should sell right away. Because do you believe in diversification? Is that is that a thing that you think makes sense? Imagine what happens to the stock when the company starts doing poorly. What if it does really poorly? What's going to happen to your career and your job? You're going to get fired. You're going to look at your savings. It's going to be wiped out. And you're going to have nothing to lean back on. And no matter how often I have that conversation, the answer is inevitably, yeah, but you know, I really understand this. It's not going to happen to me. It's not, it's not going to happen. I, I had this with my brother who was at Lehman Brothers right before the crash. I sent him an email. I have an email in 07 saying, look, I'm looking at the data here. I'm looking at the technicals. I know you have a lot of stock options in Lehman. He was a director. He's going to kill me for even putting this on, on your podcast. But I said, you got to get out of this or at least start selling out. He sent me back like a five-page email dissertation on how long Lehman Brothers had been around, that the risk department has shown these statistics. There's zero chance that it's going to go under. We don't need governmental support. And it just went away for him. You would think what's interesting about this is that the lessons you guys learned early in life with concentration, in this case, to a particular currency, say, look, it applies to any part of your life, diversification on so many things, whether the vast majority of listeners put all their money into one house. That's probably 75% of listeners' net worth. And then add on all the other problems with that leverage and, and everything else it makes it even worse. But that challenge is the old Chinese proverb, fish see the bait, not the hook. They see the gains, they see the upside, but never think in terms of walking through like, what's your life like if this goes to zero? Cryptocurrency. I mean, I could not get these 17-year-old kids that were worth millions. You seem like you would be a huge crypto proponent, no? Look, I love the idea. I love the theory. I can't. I could never pull the trigger. I just bought some now because Philbrick, Mike Philbrick, he finally found like he's been a technical analyst forever. He wasn't touching it until it lost 90%. And he bought it and I'm like, all right, buy some at this point. But this is probably totally luck. By the way, Trend Ensemble were, I assume, I mean, Trend in general Looks like it would work fantastic on crypto, but you may, you may need a little shorter time frame. We had actually longer time frame. We explored launching something like that a couple of years, not even a, a year and a half ago. The issue ended up being we had $100 million ready to go, the Canadian investors. But the issue was custody. Mike's brother, he actually does security detail for, what's the guy's name from Ethereum? The founder, I can't remember. And he was saying, you don't want to do that because you're going to have to store it in these chips. And the moment they know where you're at, the amount of people kidnapped or they kidnap your family to try to get that coin. Like you cannot have direct access to the coinage. And so a custody solution needed to be to exist first. 
before we felt comfortable moving forward with it. That's since kind of a Canadian company called 3IQ has launched a fund that passively holds these cryptocurrencies. They figured out the custody approach. So that's where we bought ourselves. A diversified ensemble of currencies. There's a lot of index funds that have popped up. I always laugh because they're all like, three percent per year fee <laughs> and i'm like I, I i get that there's probably extra fees involved in custodying and everything else but i love the at least the theory that crypto i'm a huge cheerleader i've never owned any i'm not particularly interested in crypto but as the sort of libertarian leaning side of me i love the concept but i also love the idea of wall street taking every chance to just creep in where you're like cryptos are decentralized, revolutionized. And then Wall Street's like, you know what? Let's put on some 3%, 3 and 20 management fees on yeah, top of this. We'll take care of the custody. Yeah. Let's make it institutional. Yeah. But you know what? For third world immigrants like myself, it's a great tool. I mean, you can bypass a lot of the 10% fees to transfer money internationally. A lot of the third world nations are exchanging goods based on that crypto. That was always the challenge why I missed the boat on the first place is I'm not the use case, but the people that are in some despotic regime that can't get their money out, like it makes 100% total sense. And then I'm sure there'll be a thousand use cases. Anyway, crypto guys don't at me after this and hate hate on me for not being a cheerleader. I was tweeting about it the other day. I'm like, I've been a cheerleader for many years, but they always get really angry at me. We still have the HODL ticker, I think. So that was a good one. No intentions to launch product, but anyway. All right, off track as usual. All right, so Ensemble makes a lot of sense, if not too sensible as an approach. And Jim O'Shaughnessy was writing about this and what works on Wall Street. He went through with every single factor and is like, here's price to book back to the 60s. Here's enterprise value to EBITDA, da, da, da. And he put together composites and the composites almost always blew away everything else. Didn't he also say the nine month? I think in one of the early iterations, he actually said out of all of these, I think the nine month evaluation period was the best one. We should use that one. I don't know. I don't know. doesn't ring a bell. Anyway. Well, yeah, anyway, it's common sense. This idea of the black hole is it's used in informational sciences forever. My father did his master's degree for the Navy in Monterey, California, actually. He did two years here. And he always said that operations research was answering a question poorly that would otherwise be answered even worse using statistical methods. And basically, it's even when you see the black hole image, it's kind of hazy. Even when you're using ensembles. I was going to say, it doesn't just look like Vladimir Putin's soul. <laughs> What's it a picture of? <laughs> Trump's hairpiece. I don't know. Wasn't it a young girl who wrote the algorithm for it? I yeah, feel like it was a young... I wonder how much of that is PR. But, but yeah, apparently she's one of the first to kind of put all the data together. But point being that you have... This has been around forever for people that actually are trying to win the game of extracting the signal from noise. Our game, this game of finance, the ego is so big. And the story that you build around that ego is so powerful that to say I have no view on what parameters is- Well, let's be even more skeptical. If you were a devious money manager and you said, you know what? I want the fastest path to managing $10 billion. You launch one or a series of funds that have a single parameter because you know you're going to get an outsized signal one way or the other if something happens. So you're either going to look amazing or you're going to look terrible. If you look terrible, you go out of business- whatever, one, thousands of funds that close every year. If you look amazing, they say, yes, we have rigorous proprietary quantitative algorithm that does X, Y, Z, and you raise a ton of money. Whereas if you're average, you'll survive, but you won't look as good as so-and-so. Well, this is happening. And been all- anointed. I mean, that's the story of- <laughs> This is happening all the time. Investment management forever. Maybe not for a specific factor. Because stock picking, concentrated stock picking. If you picked 
Amazon or you're a VC in Uber, you forever look brilliant. And if you put all your money into GoPro, you're in the dustbin of history. Anyway, diversify people. Let's talk about some more simple topics like machine learning. You guys have been a bunch of math nerds up there in Toronto and have made a push into this world. It sounds like something you guys have kind of been interested in, in doing for a while, but it's becoming much more of the vernacular today. You want to give us a little overview of what's going on there? Our head quant came from the machine learning world. So we're actually trying to dispel some of the myths around machine learning. It's not a silver bullet. It's simply more of the same. We're using statistical, traditional statistical tools to figure out the world of finance. Machine learning is just more of that. Our head quant came from that world. He was using machine learning to identify the optimal way of extracting oil from reservoirs out on the West Coast of Canada. And so when he came in to the world of finance and tried to apply those simple machine learning techniques to the world of finance, it was worse than if you just used simple heuristics. This has mostly to do with the fact that when you're dealing with Manitoba oil sands or oil reserves, most of the parameter set that you're dealing with are fairly static. Geology doesn't move around that much. So if, if the world that you're dealing with or the data that you're dealing with is fairly static, you can apply a machine learning technique that's trying to find really complex patterns, things that we humans can't do using our eyeball or simple regressions, finds complex patterns, really curve fits the data, and comes out with a much better output algorithm. When you bring that to the world of finance, it just doesn't work the same. I like to use the analogy that when the common machine learning tool is trying to, you feed it a bunch of pictures of cats and then learns from that database of cats, figures out all the curves and structures, and then all of a sudden you have this awesome database that you can, or machine learning algo that is able to identify pictures of cats. You type in cats, cats come out 99% of the time certainty. Well, the equivalent in the world of finance is you do that, except that the cat that you identified in your database, all of a sudden the cat morphs into a cat with one ear, then it morphs into a pug, and then it morphs into an alligator. And all of a sudden, whatever you captured, that data has completely shifted. So it's a lot tougher to use machine learning in the world of finance, but not impossible. There is a faint signal out there in a room full of noise. And it took our head quant, Andrew Butler, a few years to kind of get some hands-on experience about what financial markets are. There's a big difference between academic and what actually works in real life and real trading to then merge the two in a way that you could build on top of the whole area of factor investing and try to identify very, very small edges in a world of noise. And the big difference between applying machine learning and just data sets, market data sets versus trying to do the old fashioned, I identify the long-term factor premium value momentum trend is that you're extracting a lot of signals that may be spurious, that may work for a year or two or six months and then go away. So it may be a very real arbitrage opportunity or very real signal that happened for whatever reason, a structural reason, like an institution decided to do certain trades for six months in a row and then, and then turn it off. The key behind applying machine learning to finance is that you have to be aware that you're finding a lot of highly curve fit strategies. And so it's great for finding a ton of different strategies. But the key thing here is now, who's the governor? Who's going to let those strategies into the market? And that is an area that's not really talked about in, in machine learning. It is the ability to exclude strategies that are simply not viable in live trading. 
how does it kind of come across your desk? You're just going to apply a common sense filter? Is it a set of like rules you have about how it works? It's interesting because it is the merger between human ingenuity and using tools like machine learning. Again, this is not a silver bullet. You can have all the tools that you need to apply machine learning are there for everybody to grab. Like anybody can get access to the same things that we're using. What it really comes down to is how are you using your imagination, your ingenuity, your understanding of the market to identify patterns? So yeah, the first one is identifying a feature set. And the feature set when we first started were things that we kind of knew. Moving averages, breakout systems, Bollinger Bands. You create hundreds of thousands of these different parameters. This is, by the way, one way, one tool of, uh, of using it. But what you do want to initiate the process by saying, don't just go out and find me patterns, but rather these are time-tested techniques. Let's, like we did in the gem paper, let's mix them all up. Let's allow the machine to use these tools to identify patterns and let it identify patterns that we wouldn't have time to do on our own. You could do it the old-fashioned way, program every one of these rule sets, or there are interesting machine learning techniques where you can just say, look, find me any patterns using strategies of moving averages between one month and 18 months, randomize it, come back to me, Every week we got fed a series of strategies that may or may not be viable, the ones that really stand out based on some statistical measure that we want, whether we want to optimize based on sharp ratio or the number of percentage wins. Those go into the what we call the sentinel. The sentinel does not allow, and this is where the magic really is. It's not in the machine learning side. It's not in identifying these things. That's mostly producing garbage. But out of that, a lot of signals, you're able to use a filtering or validation process that only lets through those things that make sense from a statistical perspective. And then once you have those in live performance, the other process that is, again, nothing to do with machine learning, it's just ingenuity, understanding what works, is being able to prune those systems that all of a sudden stop working. Sentinel, is that an X-Men reference or is that something else? Random, you just come up with a random The Sentinel, so the Sentinel is actually a person who stands guard. There is no magic in machine learning. The magic is in what opportunity sets it gives you and then how do you filter those out? How do you filter the noise? And oftentimes when you look at academic papers on machine learning, all these strategies that are coming out, that Sentinel part that I'm discussing doesn't even come to play. Well, I found, I applied this machine learning technique on trying to identify when the S&P was going to go up or down. And they publish, they show phenomenal results, but there's no validation process. We have no confidence that that's a real thing. The machine just found possibly a curve fit strategy. The magic needs to be in how you're going to filter these out. And then what you got to recognize is that unlike identifying factors that are based on behavioral patterns that human beings are constantly going to likely continue to do these behavioral errors that you're going to harvest. You're just going to leave value on there forever, leave momentum, leave trend, leave quality strategies out there because you believe in the economic reasoning behind it. What you got to understand when you apply machine learning and you get through the sentinel and you have these things that are working is that you're probably extracting signals that have no economic explanation. I can't tell you in hindsight why they're working and that they might go away. It's like Peru having a fixed exchange rate to the U-dollar. A trader that knew that trade knew how to front run the times that the Peruvian central government was going to buy or sell. But of course, until that, until it didn't, until it reneged and then it goes away and all of a sudden that edge goes kaput. So the whole series, of the discussion goes into this more deeply. The point we're trying to make here is that machine learning is just another element of 
everything that we built up to so far, and that you got to be careful of what it finds, and you got to be very, very discerning as to what you actually implement, and then prune quickly. Has it started to make its presence known in y'all's process of managing the funds? It has. So, I mean, right now, all of our research goes into, if you think about that spectrum of recipes, so you got the ingredients. The ingredient we talked about was momentum, but again, like it's momentum, trend, skewness, quality, carry, things that we can identify. And then through this other process that I just described, we're identifying things that have strategy one, strategy two, strategy 2.1. All of those are ingredients. Then you have the recipe. How do you put those things together? We have even talked about weighting schemes and how we can maximize that. But we go through the gauntlet of as many edges as we can get our hands on. We want to maximize the breadth of those things, the diversification benefits of all of them. And we want to be able to go long, short, and so on. So that is our focus right now. It's futures-based only, so it's just easy to execute. The program, it's called the Evolution Multi-Strategy Futures Program. I've been running for a couple of years now. And every month it gets better. It's called the Evolution Program for a reason. We started with a couple of strategies and it's, you know, now we have dozens of strategies. I just had this very fond remembrance of not safe for work, somewhat inappropriate. It's on public television, so it's not that inappropriate. Or you mentioned like it just keeps getting better. There was an old Saturday Night Live skit and it was Vince Vaughn and Will Ferrell and others. Tell me if you've seen it. We'll post it to the show notes. But Vince was getting ready to get married and he's sitting down with his buddies at the bar, Will Ferrell and someone else. I can't remember who it was. And he's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do it. And then he's like, I'm worried once I get married, my wife is going to, we're going to fight all the time and she's going to be nag at me or something. And Will Ferrell's like, no, they just, after you get married, it's amazing. They get nicer. Vince Vaughn is like, you know, I don't know. I, you know, a lot of people, once they get married, they kind of mail it in, they stop exercising, they get, and Will Ferrell's like, no, it's amazing. My wife's underwear just keeps getting bigger and better. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the best clip, really funny. But so anyway, getting better, constant improvement. Well, the key is that the research really f- is focused on an arena where we're not restricted by any sort of regulations and whatnot. We run a 40-act fund. And that's more of the plain vanilla. That's more like what we started with back in the day, which is a long, flat, tactical, global, it's like risk parity on steroids, having asset classes that benefit in different economic regimes. And, and by the way, by the way, it's funny because I have no dog in this fight, but the media, what is it about risk parity that the media and the journalists just, at least you have Cliff out there trying to fight the good fight, but... 2018 media is like all over risk parity. And then it's got to be romping and stomping this year, I assume. Oh, it's doing really well. Right. So risk parity 2019 is crushing it. And you don't hear anything about risk parity this year. Crickets. Crickets. The dumbest is like risk parity is somehow going to create like a snowball effect. I'm like, that is the dumbest possible. Anyway. It's fascinating. We actually did a rebuttal. You know, Real Vision TV? They were just destroying risk parity. It's a Cayman base. It is a Cayman base thing. We love the guys. And they gave us the opportunity to do a rebuttal. And I I put together like an hour and a half long presentation on the myths behind risk parity. And one of them, the first one is, the one that bothers me the most is this idea that it's just a levered bond portfolio. Okay, wait, wait, wait. And before we keep going, for those who are not familiar with risk parity, 
Yeah, let's give us, give us your quick description. So risk parity is this concept that it was originally the concept came from Ray Dalio. He runs a lot of alpha strategies. He has a pure alpha fund and he was contemplating what was going to happen the day that he passed away in his trust. And he wanted to put together a way of managing money that didn't depend on the expertise of his team that he didn't trust after he died, I guess. But the point is, how do you put together a portfolio where it will do well regardless of the economic regime that we're in. The way you got to think about it is that the economic environment is split between two dynamics, inflation dynamics and growth dynamics. So high inflation, low inflation, low growth, high growth, then depending on the intersection of those two dynamics, certain asset classes are expected to do well. This makes intuitive sense. If you're going to have a period of high inflation and low growth like we saw in the 70s, well, we know up front categorically that tips are going to perform well because they're designed structurally to make money in high inflation environments and in low growth environments, treasuries tend to do well, so it's a double whammy. And in periods of high growth and high inflation, like we saw from 99 to 2007, you're going to see commodities in real estate and emerging market bonds do really, really well. 1982 to 1990, when you have reducing or lowering interest rates and high growth, you're going to see developed equities and bonds do really well in periods like 08 or the tech crisis or December of last year. When there's a growth shock and there's reducing inflation, then you're going to have treasuries and gold really do really well. You want to have exposure to all of these components, but the key thing is that you don't want to equal weight them. I think you talk about the, what is it called? The Brown portfolio, the- uh, Permanent portfolio. The permanent portfolio, Harry portfolio Brown. right? Harry Brown, perfectly viable solution. It's the same concept, except that it's equal dollar weight. The key thing about risk parity is this idea that equities have two to three times the amount of risk or volatility as bonds. But we kind of, in empirical testing, when you look at each one of these asset classes over 100 years, they all have the same sharp ratio, different volatilities, but the same sharp ratio. So if they're all returning the same sharp, then all we need to do is make sure that the maniacs aren't taking over the asylum, that equities aren't dominating the risk of the portfolio. So risk parity says, I'm going to give more dollars to the low volatility strategy until the low volatility asset class, until it hits the same volatility as a riskier one. So you weight them in such a way where each one of those asset classes contribute the same amount of risk to the portfolio, where not one of them can dominate the risk of the portfolio. And this is a great concept, except that when you do it, you end up getting a very low volatility, high, sharp, low volatility. You, you I feel like if you could go back, it should have come up with a better marketing phrase than risk parity. <laughs> and he needed something like the whole low vol that has raised a gazillion dollars. Like that's great marketing, but risk parity, put the word risk in anything. Like, are you kidding me? But, and this is a really good description. You've clearly, <laughs> you've clearly done, done that before. Twice. The one additional point I'd like to make is that if you think about asset classes and you mentioned stocks versus bonds, there's really no reason to accept them prepackaged. Like you don't have to accept stocks at their level of volatility they trade out if you just buy a total nominal position. You could put half your money in stocks and half in T-bills, in which case you're just delevering stocks. And the good example too is that stocks also have debt, so they're inherently leveraged. And there's no reason except bonds. At So this is, goes back to the old school capital market line and everything else. And the thing I would always add to the Bridgewater side is that a lot of other people also kind of came to this conclusion through different routes. The old school commodity trading advisors in the 70s absolutely volatility weighted their positions. They had to, otherwise you're trading Euro dollars and wheat and lean hogs. How do you equalize those positions? And if you even go back further in the research, you'll find people that have come up with 
all sorts of different ones. The one we joke about the most is the Talmud, which is like 2000 years old, which dollar weights, three asset classes, but it's stocks, real estate, bonds, not what they called it, but essentially the same thing. Here's the biggest complaint of against prosperity is that, so what happens is you get this well-balanced portfolio that has a low volatility and a lower absolute return than the 60-40 US equity portfolio. And so people say, well, why would I do that complex equation where I can just do 60-40? Well, the sharp ratio is higher. So this idea of you can't eat sharp, well, that's, you can't eat sharp if you're not willing to use leverage, which is a whole other conversation. Well, what they do, what he came up with is he said, you tell me the risk that you're willing to take and I will lever that portfolio to the point where we hit that risk target or that return expectation. And at that point, what you're doing is you're levering the whole portfolio. You're not levering bonds, but because bonds represents the largest portion of the portfolio because of its low volatility, the concept is that you're levering a bond and not levering all of it together. Right. And people, their brain just sort of just totally malfunctions when they hear this risk parity. It's up there with buybacks for me on journalists. I'm not singling out journalists, just people in general commenting on it. And this kind of this makes me shake my head. I used to own risk parity. I think I still own risk parity and risk party. <laughs> you <want laughs> oh, this, that's right. The, you want uh, those domains, you're welcome to have the them. The domain, but, yeah. But okay, so this concept of putting together a portfolio, like once you hear that description... It's hard to look at portfolio. It's like, you know, the matrix taking the pill, look at them the same way after and go back to another way of thinking. It just makes exactly. so much sense. This is why I, I like to tell people the 12 days of investment wisdom. It's like the Game of Thrones. Once you start, you can't stop because you start. And I went through this myself. Right? You start recognizing these gems of wisdom, these ideas that kind of give you a whole paradigm shift to portfolio construction. And you can never go back to anything else. I remember... One of the th my pet peeves about risk parity was a, a paper that came out from just a large asset manager that is mainly focused on equities and, and valuations on equities. And they went after risk parity, saying it was just a lever bond portfolio. Look what happened to bonds. And I think you've mentioned this once or twice, but from 1940 to 1981, bonds, from a real return perspective, lost 68%. Bonds lost 68% in real terms during that 40-year. It was a massive bear market. And so when you think about if you've been told that risk parity is a levered bond portfolio, then you are terrified of that happening again. But because risk parity is not a levered bond portfolio, you have a inflation component with commodities and tips. You have a growth component with equities and you have a kind of deflationary component with treasuries. Those may have different dollar amounts. You might have a if you're levered 200%, you might have 120 in bonds. You might have 40% in equities and 20% in commodities. But during that 40-year period, equities crushed it. Commodities did really well. And in fact, the risk parity portfolio is what I show in the Real Vision podcast. The risk parity component during that period was an upward sloping line and actually outperformed in 60-40. Moreover, if you were okay, and what they were saying in this paper is like, you should be 100% equities because if this happens, that's the thing that did the best. Well, if you're okay with taking equity-like risks, so volatility of around 15%, so US equities ball from 1940 to 1981 was around 15%. If you were to lever the risk parity portfolio up front to 15 vol without knowing which asset class was going to perform best, it outperformed drastically the US equity markets with lower drawdowns and a pretty straight line. So you see what I mean? Without having to make a decision up front, you're doing better. This is the whole concept of the risk parity. You just, you say what risk you can take 
and your chances of being right in your lifetime are significantly higher because you're covered into those regimes. The, there's one incredible benefit of the risk parity strategy in my mind is that it gets investors thinking asset class agnostic. So you mentioned this earlier, where a 60-40 stocks bonds portfolio is 60-40 dollar weighted, but it's like 90% plus volatility dominated by stocks because just because they're so much more volatile than bonds. The problem, again, was a marketing decision where you have two barbell problems in risk parity strategy. One, the name, risk parity. The second being the fact that it often involves something that people don't understand, which is leverage up or down. And then the third would probably be that if you're levering it up, it often involves derivatives. And then people just, their brain totally, the three of those together, derivatives, leverage, risk parity, because we all know those are bad. Those three phrases are bad if you're long-term capital. But you could risk parity target 4% vol if you wanted. Exactly. So you can do a, not even a non-levered, but a risk parity plus cash portfolio. And you're still more likely to do well when it matters in your two to three to five year time frame. Bridgewater was smart because they named theirs intelligently. They called it All Weather. And by the way, we, we found this great book. I love reading old investment books. And we found one that was like a decade before All Weather launched. I think the name of the book was called like Diversify. And I'd never even heard of it. It was probably just randomly picked it up either on Amazon or a bookstore. And they outline a portfolio in the book that's risk parity-like that's called All Weather. <laughs> Not saying Ray stole it, guys. I'm just saying. Well, what's hilarious is that AQR launched their risk parity fund and was called the risk parity fund. And now I think the last they year changed they changed it to balanced or something, which is brilliant. We have an ETF that we run in Canada, risk parity, non-levered risk parity ETF. And the biggest feedback from the wholesalers are like, please, God, change that name. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We just we haven't gotten around to put it. Put our heads together, singing just like the so mellow, chill portfolio. You were asking about the 40 act strategy, well, some, the adaptive asset allocation strategy. It's risk parity on steroids because instead of just measuring correlations and volatilities and doing everything in equal risk contribution and investing in all those asset classes, you and I both know that there are times to be invested in those and times not to. So this, the adaptive asset allocation approach, the one that we really launched our careers on, our resolve careers on, was a tactical asset allocation strategy that applies risk parity to the asset classes that make it into the portfolio. So we will at times completely exclude asset classes. And this really takes it, smooths out the line even further, increases the returns that much better. So that from then is when we we then evolved into the multi-strategy, long, short, everything portfolio. And so it's August. Could you give us any indication of what they sort of look like at all today? Is it just a a big amalgamation of all sorts of different stuff, I assume. We've had a kind of a romping, stomping year. You know, tactical, especially that long flat tactical in 2018 was terrible. I've been writing about this for a while that what's the kryptonite? I always think that's what's going to make this not work. And I always said negative, hawkish Fed policy is, going to, is the kryptonite. If you go back to 1994, it is terrible for multi-asset strategies. And why 94? Because Greenspan came out behind the curve inflation and he started raising rates. I think he raised them from three to eight and 13 months, 3.875, and would raise 50 basis points in FOMC meetings without letting the market know. And whenever you hit the market without them expecting it that poorly, every single asset class goes down at the same time. Cash is king. All of a sudden, money sucked away from risk and put towards cash. 
it also, if you want to think about it from the academic perspective, your present value is discounted by the cost of money, which is the interest rate. As interest rates go up, your present value goes down. So everything goes down together. And when you depend on diversification and you're in a long only strategy, if you're risk parity, it kills you. So if you go back to 94, brutal for risk parity. If you go back to 2004, the first rate hike, Ben Bernanke's, no, so the first rate hike by Greenspan after the tech crisis, that month was brutal for every single asset class together, high correlation. 2006, the first rate, the last rate hike from Bernanke, 2013, the taper tantrum in 2018. It was, I think, the first year since 94 where every single asset class over the last 12 months underperformed cash. So that is poor for that. But then all of a sudden, so you have this policy shock that affects every single asset class. That bled into a growth shock. So go back to risk parity, where you saw in December, not everything going down, but just risk on going down and treasuries making a killing. And I wrote in October, I'm like, so generally, if we're going to follow history here, I'm a quant, I don't want to hang my head on this, but this idea that the moment that the hawkish governor realizes he screwed up, everybody's on him, he's going to go dovish. And if you see that in the newspapers in 94, you see it in 2004, you see it in 06. And sure enough, by the end of December, it starts going easy money. And it didn't matter over the last eight months. It doesn't matter what you invested in, you made money. Treasuries are up, commodities are up equities are up. So if you're a risk parity strategy, you're having a good year. If you're a momentum-driven risk parity strategy like adaptive asset allocation, you're having a great year. It's like a mirror image of Q4 2018 that this year has been good for a lot of things, risk parity in particular. All right, man. So we covered a lot of stuff today. What else is on the horizon? You guys look out. I know you're potentially launching some funds. Are there any studies you're thinking about? You guys also now have a podcast yeah, we're finally launching the traditional podcast. We jabbered on a while on there. Yeah, we had you on. We've had five guests so far, mainly quanty, nerdy people with very complex topics, but they're fun nonetheless for the right audience. What's interesting about the podcast, before, like a month before you launched your podcast, Mike, Adam, and I, when we weren't even resolved, we were still part of the bank, we launched our first episode. We didn't launch it. We recorded our first episode. I took a picture of the deep blue microphone and put it on my Twitter feed and said, the Butler Philbert Gordillo Group first podcast. And then we just got busy and never launched it. And then like a month later, you launched yours. And I'm like, well, we're too late to the game now. <laughs> Fast forward three, four years, and it's like, my God, did we miss that boat? Oh, it's great. I think it's still in its infancy. It's funny. We struggled for a long time doing the podcast because we wanted to do video. We thought people wanted to consume in video, which turned out to be totally wrong. But then the world's come full circle where everyone loves video because now it's so easy to produce and consume. We started out putting out some videos, which humorously, like the number one comment is just about that I don't have a beard in the videos. And they're also like, this is a really weird style of recording, but we're going to try it, experiment for a while. I like it. I think, isn't it like YouTube, the one of the top search engines? When people search for stuff, they go for video search yeah. first and foremost. Well, welcome to 2019, soon to be 2020. That's going to be weird to say. I was going to record, so we have the machine learning podcast between Adam and I. We're going to record it. I was going to put a video on and my quant said, there's no way I'm getting on camera. So I wonder how that's going to go. That's funny. So, okay. So y'all got that going on. It's a lot of fun at the very least. Like you're just chatting with buds about who knows what. You guys working on any new research projects, papers, ideas? I mean, you're pretty prolific. I mean, this post a show note link to the Global Equity Momentum paper. That must have taken a while. Yeah. You have two or three projects on the go. That's Adam's baby. And uh, I think the, I don't know if I published this one or the portfolio optimization three-part series 
for practitioners. That was a pretty popular one as well. That one goes into, here's a key aspect that I think is missed by a lot of practitioners is this idea that going back to the recipes of everybody wants to improve their edge. So how do I get a better momentum signal? How do I get a better value signal? And it's really just about which asset classes or securities am I going to hold and which am I going to exclude? And then it ends there. How will you weight them as an afterthought? We talked a little bit about risk parity, but this is where like almost 50% of the magic is in terms, if you care about maximizing your return per unit of risk, ignoring the weighting scheme is a big mistake. And that's what this optimization series is about. It's saying portfolio construction, what do you think you can estimate? Can you estimate volatility? Can you estimate correlation? Can you estimate returns? And depending on what you think is estimatable, then you have an optimal optimization technique to use. But what's fascinating about this, is think about it from, let's just simplify this for a second. If you believe in the equity risk premium, let's say you believe in the US equity risk premium, you can buy the S&P 500. And that'll be the signal, your ingredient. You also believe in the term premium. You buy the 10-year treasury. So you have a 50-50 bond equity portfolio. That portfolio, same these two asset classes, 50-50 from 91 to now, annualizes to something like 8.5% a year, 25% maximum drawdown. It's not a bad strategy. It captures what people believe to be the real reason you should invest in the market. But merely changing the weighting. So instead of doing 50-50, you go to risk parity weight, 75-25. Just doing that takes the, I think the sharp ratio for the 50-50 is 0.94 during that period. The sharp ratio for the 75-25 is 1.23. So you're increasing your sharp ratio by 30% merely from changing the weighting scheme. So that's what this paper is really focused on is you have your skill. Well, how do you maximize that skill, that whatever that skill is? But then instead of doing just equal weight or inverse volatility, be more thoughtful about how you weight things. And by being thoughtful about the weighting scheme, you're able to increase your sharp ratio by as much as 30%. And it has nothing to do with your ability to pick better stocks or pick better asset classes. It had everything to do with just being more thoughtful about how you weight things. Nobody talks about it. It's a boring subject. When people ask us, what are you guys proficient in? Breadth. That's not sexy. Anyway, we're trying to get the word out with on that side of things. Hopefully, push the envelope a little bit more for practitioners. We have it, all the formulas are there for people to take a look at and improve their, if you have an edge and you have a good sharp ratio, give it to us or read our papers and we'll deliver back the same edge with better performance simply by waiting. You hit the road quite a fair amount. Where are you going to be the rest of the year? Just Toronto and well, Cayman? I'm going to be Toronto, hopefully opening up a Cayman office. So Mike Philbrick will take the bullet for the rest of the team. He's going to go out there and build the office. Such he's, a hero. He's uh, gung-ho about building the Cayman compound similar to Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan compound, the Resolve Asset Management compound. So if anybody's out in uh, Cayman and wants to have a good time, and, and by good time, we mean like cold baths <laughs> and e-foiling and being a in a lot like of hundred degree saunas and, and snatches and clean and jerks. That's how we represent deadlifting. Adam would take offense to that being fun, but uh, for myself and Mike and a couple other guys in the firm. You're only allowed to eat keto and in between the hours of 5 and 7 p.m. That is correct. A little <laughs> bit of intermittent fasting. You know, we want to live till about 150 so we can then transfer our brains to the to You the still matrix. get to Peru ever? You know, I've actually never been. Lima is now what? like a world culinary capital. I go back every year. I got two of my brothers, you know, the Lehman brothers mm-hmm. back in Lima. My younger brother's there. I got a brother in San Francisco. So we all go once a year and get the family together and eat some amazing food. We have uh, two of the top Restaurants of the planet are in Lima right now. One is in the top 10. That sounds like a great spot for a 
quant nerd conference. <laughs> yeah, quant sponsored by Resolve Asset Management. I've tried. I've tried to go hitting those investor conferences in Lima, and if it's not private equity or private real estate backed by the government guarantee, there is. You mean you can't get me a twenty percent rate of return with no volatility? Yeah, and no risk. No, thank you. Yeah, why so low? People want to find you. They want to see what you're up to. They want to follow on y'all's writings, ruminations, everything else. Where do they go? Yeah. So we have our blog, which is investorshelp.com forward slash blog is where you can find that. Just go to investorshelp.com, go to media. We have the two podcasts. One is just the mini series and the other one is the interview style. And we have our blog post where we post just kind of thoughts as well as summaries of our more like 35, 40 page white papers. And of course, Twitter. The oh, yes. FinTwit community. Yes. Uh, I should be more active than I am and have been, but Adam, our CIO, is the most active at gestaltu.com. He doesn't mince words, likes to get likes to get aggressive in there, so it's a fun it's a fun stream to watch. Mike's pretty fun too, putting all his videos of his snatches and big yeah. deadlifts. I love it. And myself at Rod Gordillo P. Rodrigo, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you. It's been great. Investors will post the show note links to all these, mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, anywhere else good podcasts are found. Leave us a review, shoot us feedback at themebfavorshow.com. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer all lowercase. That's shopify.com specialoffer.